Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 218, Paul Dear brothers III. and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So, every once in a while when I record these episodes, I come across someone I didn't know anything about and they turn out to be absolutely fascinating and almost kind of sparks a little devotion in me. I'm like, wow, what an amazing or interesting Pope. Today's Pope is not a saint, but he is incredibly fascinating and his role in the change and the reform of the church is just fantastic. We've been struggling through the reform of the church and the church's response to the Renaissance and the early Reformation for some time. And like the last couple of popes have been really indolent Renaissance princes and strict pious reformers in there for a little bit. And today's Pope is kind of a little bit of both, and he almost catches you by surprise. So we've met him before, and not necessarily in the best of circumstances. His, he was born Alessandro Farnese on February 29th, 1468. He was local nobility. His mother was of the famous Cayetani family, which boasted popes in their family tree. Alessandro was destined for the church from an early age, but he was given a very humanistic Renaissance education in Florence and Pisa. Now, early in his life, he was jailed because of a dispute between the papacy and his family, but later he began to rise in the ranks thanks to the patronage of Lorenzo the Magnificent of Florence. But his real rise began in 1491 when his beautiful sister Julia met Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia at her wedding and began an affair with him pretty quickly thereafter. The cardinal, of course, became pope the following year, and Julia became one of the most influential people in Rome. On September 20th, 1493, Julia managed to get his, her brother named the Cardinal Deacon of St. Cosmas and Damien. And for all his ecclesiastical promotion, he was not a chaste or holy man at first. He had four children, and he lived the life of a Renaissance prince, focused on humanistic learning more than devotion to God and, of course, pleasure. Now, I'm not going to go through all of his activity during the various papacies from Alexander VI to the episode today. They were tumultuous times, and there were shifting alliances constantly, but it seemed like through it all, Cardinal Farinese managed to be on everyone's good side. Now, the biggest impact on him, however, came during the Fifth Lateran Council. On May 12, 1512, the Fifth Lateran Council opened, and Cardinal Farinese was an active participant. And something seems to have changed during this time period. Sitting in on this reform council, listening to pious men like the great Cajetan, the master of the Dominicans, talk about the duties of a cardinal and his role in the church, all this seems to have changed a lot about Cardinal Farinese. He separated from his mistress in 1513. He began to focus more on his diocese that he was nominally in charge of in 1516. And in 1519, he called a synod to help reform the diocese. In 1519, in fact, he was finally ordained a priest and said his first mass on Christmas Day that year and seems to have actually begun to live out his promises of celibacy. We're not sure we don't have a diary of his internal you know, life, but there seems to have been some sort of conversion happening with him, and it seems to have been pretty legitimate. Now, all that being said, he was still ambitious, and in 1523, he was one of the candidates for the papacy in the conclave that elected Clement VII. He was particularly bitter about losing. He said that Clement had deprived him of 10 years of the papacy, but he fairly quickly made up with the new pope, and during the sack of Rome, he was imprisoned with him in the castle San Angelo. He was so useful and well-liked, both by Pope Clement VII and the people of Rome, that Pope Clement wanted him to be his successor. He was the most senior of the cardinals, and the conclave was quick and unanimous. Upon his election on October 13, 1534, he took the name Pope Paul III, and four days later when he met with his cardinals, he said they had to call a council. 
Now, his choice was celebrated by everyone. The reformers of the church liked him. The Romans liked him. The emperor liked him. He'd been one of the leading voices for the calling of a new ecumenical council after the Protestant controversy. And since his conversion, he was seemingly walking the walk as well as talking the talk. Now, there's one hiccup to begin with in his papacy on that front, and that was a pretty blatant act of nepotism within his first two cardinals. He named his 14-year-old nephew and his 16-year-old grandson as cardinals in December of 1534. The rest of the College of Cardinals, who had all been appointed by Leo X and Clement VII, were not great reformers either. and They were too attached to the empire or to France, and they would probably become an obstacle to reform. But these first two cardinals kind of caused a lot of controversy. But despite this, Pope Paul pushed on to reform. In January 1535, the cardinals opposed his decision to call a council, but he kept going. He said the council should take place in Mantua in northern Italy, where everyone could reach it. Luther rejected the council so long as it had any recognized papal authority, and the cardinals were not much help either. But one of those things Pope could change himself. His second appointment of cardinals was awesome. They were all wise, pious, and zealous men ready to undertake the work of reform. In May of 1535, the Pope appointed seven new cardinals, including the reforming Dominican Bishop Nicholas von Schoenberg, the Holy St. John Fisher, who was about to be martyred by Henry VIII before he could even get the red hat on his head, and the Venetian layman Gasparo Contrarini, who was one of the outstanding proponents of church reform. Apparently, the Pope also proposed the great Renaissance humanist scholar Erasmus to be named a cardinal, but he declined due to health reasons. Cardinal Contarini was immediately put in charge of trying to get a council underway. A papal bull was drawn up proclaiming a council in Mantua in 1537. Contarini outlined the plan of reform to be proposed at the council, but the council wouldn't open in 1537. There were still too many problems to be worked out. The Duke of Mantua didn't want it to happen especially, and so it was postponed and moved, and then the opening date was set for Vincenza in 1539. In the meanwhile, the Pope appointed more all-star cardinals and worked to reform the Roman Church directly. Ordinances were given that the cardinals in Rome had, and the clerics in Rome had to dress like clerics. If they held any office, they had to actually be ordained to that office, and they had to actually pray the Liturgy of the Hours and live clerical celibacy. The next set of cardinals were men who fit that bill. A group of the foremost reformers had been called to Rome by the Pope, guided by Cardinal Contarini, and they were already hard at work preparing the council. While they were meeting, Pope Paul not only urged the whole church to reform in a public setting, but he chose many of the members of of this commission to be cardinals in a consistory in December 1536. The most prominent was a man named Gian Pietro Carafa, who was the Archbishop of Chetti, and together with St. Cajetan, which is not Cardinal Cajetan, who we met in a previous episode, he left his worldly track to found a new religious order called the Theatines, dedicated to the reform of the church. He was a vigorous and pious reformer and a Thomistic theologian. Alongside him were other pious clerics from around Europe, the most notable being Reginald Pole. Pole was a member of the royal family of England and a childhood friend of the Princess Mary, the daughter of Henry VIII and of Catherine of Aragon. The price of his red hat was unfortunately his mother's life. Henry had tried to offer Pole the Archbishopric of York in exchange for his support of Henry's divorce, but Pole and his family refused to bow to King Henry, and Henry took his anger out on his mother, Margaret now known as Blessed Margaret Pole, who was martyred for the faith. Cardinal Pole was devout, dedicated reform, he learned literary, and traveled in a diverse circle. He went to school with some of the leading Protestant thinkers, and he was a personal friend with some, yet he was faithful to the church and her doctrine. So with Pole, Carafa, Contarini, and the rest, now Pope Paul III had a team to bring about reform. 
But the rest of the world still wasn't cooperating. The Emperor Charles V and his brother Ferdinand wanted to negotiate with the Protestants, and they tried, but it didn't work out. Cardinal Contarini, in fact, had gone to the negotiation at the Diet of Radisbon, also known as the Diet of Regensburg. And all that really was accomplished was that he was able to convince Ferdinand that the real reform was happening in Rome and to trust the Pope. So the German Catholics got on board, but they made one last demand, moving the council from Venezia to Trent, also in northern Italy, but it was basically a German city. So that way the Germans thought it was in a German city and the, the Italians thought it was in an Italian city. The council would begin in November of 1542. It was pushed back again because of conflicts between the emperor and the king of France, which we're going to hear a lot about over this council and which Pope Paul III, unlike his predecessors, maintained a strict neutrality in. In the meantime, however, the Pope wasn't waiting for the Council to begin reform. He pushed ahead in reforming Rome itself, instituting the very things the Council of Trent would later make universal. Finally, in September of 1544, a treaty was signed between France and the Empire, and now there were no more obstacles, at least not insurmountable ones. Charles wanted the Protestants in Germany to be brought to heel militarily before the Council. He had a bunch of other thoughts about the Council, but the Pope pushed ahead, the first session of the Council of Trent opened on December 13, 1545. Now, before we delve into the work of the Council, which will take the rest of this episode, let's talk a little bit more about the work of reform happening outside of the Council. The reforming spirit was starting to sweep through the Church and gave rise to several new religious orders founded by people inspired by Paul III or the Spirit at the time. We already heard about the Theatines, founded by St. Cajetan and Cardinal Carafa. Added to those were the Ursulines, founded by St. Angela Marici, the Capuchin Franciscans, and the Oratory of Divine Love, which would later give rise to St. Philip Neri's Oratorians. As well, we had the reforming works in Spain happening of St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. And in 1540, the Church formally recognized the foundation of the Society of Jesus by St. Ignatius of Loyola, who will become a driving force in the Counter-Reformation period, and which you've probably heard of today as the Jesuits. Something was happening, and the culture of the church was changing for the better. We also have to talk a little bit about the New World at this time. Before the pontificate of Paul III, there had been a large debate in the church regarding the status of Native Americans found in the New World. Could or ought they be enslaved? Pope Paul ruled pretty definitively that they could not in the bull Sublimus Deus, declaring that the Native people of the New World were fully human and ought to be treated as human beings possessing full human rights. It also applied a penalty of excommunication to anyone who didn't follow and said it was a duty of all those in the New World to evangelize the people there, but not by force. And that evangelization was happening because just before his pontificate, Our Lady had appeared to St. Juan Diego at Guadalupe. The people of Mexico were all becoming Catholic. So the first session of the Council of Trent began on December 13, 1545. Two months later, Martin Luther died. The initial council sessions were chaired by three reform-minded cardinals, including Cardinal Reginald Pohl. The council debated initially how it should proceed, whether it should address reform first or dogma. The Pope wanted dogma, the emperor wanted reform. It was decided to do both. For every debate on dogma, a debate on reform would follow. So every speculative debate would follow with a practical one. The council met in a series of congregations and commissions, which then presented its work for approval by the rest of the assembly. Originally, there weren't as many bishops in attendance, but gradually the numbers started to grow. The first meetings of the council settled on the role of divine revelation and determined that both scripture and tradition were sources of revelation. The council proceeded, but tensions began to grow between Charles V and Pope Paul. It started during negotiations about the emperor's plans to fight the Protestant princes in the Holy Roman Empire. The war began in part because the Archbishop of Cologne decided to become Protestant. He was not only an important bishop, but he was also one of the electors of the Holy Roman Emperor, 
which would have given the Protestants a majority in the Electoral College, which would elect the next emperor after Charles V. Now, this was a bridge too far for Charles, who up to this point had been trying to negotiate with the Protestants, but he now turned to a military solution in what was called the, the Schmalkaldic War. The Schmalkaldic War was, supposed, was supported financially by the Pope, even though he wasn't a huge fan, and his part perhaps because it would free him up to try and seek greater territory for one of his illegitimate sons in Italy. Now, this child, Pier Luigi, was made the Duke of Parma and Piacenza, much against the emperor's will who tried to maneuver against him. But because he was caught up in war in Germany, which was kind of funded by the Pope, he didn't have the ability to stop him. Now, in March of 1547, a bad sickness passed through Trent, perhaps caused by the movement of troops through the city on their way to fight in Germany. And the council fathers wanted to either suspend or move the council. The emperor wanted to press on, but the Pope, who was growing more hostile to the emperor each day, wanted to move it. The emperor was furious when he found out that the Pope was leaning this way. And on top of it, it seemed like the Pope was growing closer with France. His son, Pierre Luigi, seemed to be cozying up to France as well. So when the time came and the Council of Trent was removed to Bologna in April of 1547, the imperial bishops stubbornly remained in Trent. The emperor's legate in Italy, meanwhile, had expelled Pierre Luigi, the Pope's son from Parma, who was then assassinated not much later by pro-imperial conspirators in Piacenza. It turns out that Pierluigi was not a great duke, and this was the excuse they needed to do him in, but that didn't help the situation at all. The Pope was heartbroken, and he was furious, and he blamed the emperor and his legate in Italy for his son's death. The Pope quarreled then with the emperor about who should rule Parma and Piacenza after his son's death, saying the duchies should return to the papal states. But even his grandson, Ottavio, betrayed him and went over to the imperial side in this argument and said he himself would govern these places. Now, his other grandson, Cardinal Farnese, conveyed the news and took Ottavio's side, and an argument blew up between him and the Pope. And so overwhelmed by all the arguments and betrayal, the now 82-year-old Pope fell ill. He confessed his sins, received communion, and on November 10, 1549, died. The Council of Trent was not complete and was still split. The Reformation was still ongoing, and there was a dissension between the imperial and French-leaning cardinals. Now, despite his nepotism in early life, overall, we have to say that Pope Paul III was one of the more vigorous and faithful popes in the history of the church. His own conversion and zeal for reform laid the groundwork for the counter-reformation and legitimate reform of the Roman Curia. He was buried in St. Peter's Basilica and was succeeded by Pope Julius III. We will talk about him next time. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.